Buffett dives into energy on this energy edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Thursday, February 18th, 2016, and joining me to talk all things energy and materials are the irreplaceable Tyler Crow and Taylor Muckerman. What is up, guys? He's only saying that because we weren't here last week. Because they replaced us. (laughs) If you want to think that. Because they replaced us. I was trying to be nice. If you want to think that. We actually had a good time last week on the show. Yeah, you guys can leave. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. See you later. I'm kidding. No. You are both irreplaceable because uh, we're actually talking about energy today. Oh. Um, Did you listen to last week's show with Vince? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, we talked like driverless cars and effects on... We did more of an industrials kind of thing. Okay. Anyway. Um, So first up, really quick before we uh, dive into talking Buffett and stuff. um, The other day, this seems like a half-hearted thing that they're doing, but everybody's like, okay, OPEC needs to cut production in order to get oil prices up, da-da-da-da-da. And I I didn't think this was an option, but apparently it is. So Saudi Arabia called up Russia, and they agreed to a production freeze at elevated production levels or something. Can somebody explain that to me? Um, yeah, that's basically it. The two, Saudi Arabia and Russia, the two largest oil producers in the world. They're uh, both at just over 10 million barrels yeah, or something. Yeah, somewhere right around there. Yeah. Uh, have said that they are willing to freeze their current output at these levels uh, in order to help kind of spur along the recovery. However, it's also contingent that everybody else plays along. So they're saying, you know, hey, we'll do it as long as Iran and Iraq and everybody else gets on board with it. But which seems unlikely to me. Which seems like most of them are saying, hey, we love the idea of you guys uh, freezing output, you but it? you know what? We still want to bring on more production because we want more money. So it always just seems like kind of a non-starter, at least from a a, yeah. a, a long-term investor's perspective. These are just kind of those things that. When they happen, you know we what, we have like a five percent jump in oil prices, like yeah. immediately following because everybody got excited. It's like, oh, oil's back, baby. Well, guess what? And next yeah. day it happens and doesn't happen because people want to keep producing. And you know, it just seemed weird that they were gonna uh, really quick just before we move on. Um, it just seems weird that they were willing to freeze production at current levels. And if memory serves, Saudi Arabia is over 10 million barrels a day, like 10.1, 10.2. And even in summer 2014, before all this happened, they were at like 9.6 of memory. Like, I don't... Well, that's the thing. Why why, why care about freezing when you're at yeah, producing at I record like, levels? Yeah. Russia produced an all-time high in 2015. Yeah. So they're like... Sure, we'll freeze because we probably can't produce that much more. We can't anyways. go any higher. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> their the currency's down like over thirty percent to start right. of the year. The government's strapped for cash, so these companies have no backing right now. It's and kind they of raised absurd, debt yeah. in two, 2015 just to stay afloat and keep producing oil. So, Russia, I think, instituted this freeze out of like because there's nothing else they nothing can else do. to like, do. It's just yeah. like, hey, maybe if we say we're going to freeze it, prices will jump. Because yeah. we're freezing it anyways, out of out of necessity, not out of desire. 
So Iran uh, came out and said they, they like this idea, like Tyler was mentioning, but they basically were just like, yeah, but we're not going to freeze production. But don't they kind of have a point? Because they're trying desperately this year to get to like 500,000 barrels a day. But before, you know, in 2011 or 12 or whatever, before um, you know, all the embargo stuff and all that, that, that those niceties, they were like three or four million barrels a day or something. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, like, a, they're a little ways off from where they used to be. Yeah. But, and that's their goal. And they kind of, but I mean, at the same time, I'm not saying I like them or anything. But don't they kind of have a point there? They might, but at the same time, I mean, do you really want to ramp up and spend a whole lot of money when right. oil's at thirty dollars a barrel? Tens right of billions of dollars to ramp up production again. Yeah. I mean, they need a lot of investment. So, so cool. Um, so moving on to our next story, out of oil and into mining. Um, looks like the big guns in the mining space are basically feeling the pinch right now. Um, report just came out uh, yesterday. Anglo American is to, going to stop all iron ore and coal operations. What? Well, what I mean, else do they do? Well, Anglo, <laughs> they're uh, not. That's not their big thing. Anglo American is more okay, of a diversified so. miner. Um, they have a lot in platinum and copper, uh, a couple other precious, not precious, but more precious yeah. than iron ore and coal, right, which is apparently um, everywhere or something. <laughs> so, and they're not a huge, huge contributor to the iron ore market, but they are one of the five largest mining companies in the world. Right. And to see them. You know, throwing the towel on two and big what was commodities. It? Just a few months ago, we watched Glencore almost look like they were going to go through the the kind of death throes of of um, the debt spiral. So it, it's really as we see these bigger and bigger companies starting to get into these debt issues and asset sales and to stop production and a lot of things. It's it's really telling us to what's going on. I mean, Rio Tinto just also mentioned that they're cutting their Who dividend. Were the two and they po- were one of the strongest balance sheets in the business. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, that's and, a surprise. And BHP Billiton, who has the strongest balance sheet yeah. in the business, actually had their credit rating downgraded. So wow. it's it's when you have the largest companies, the most profitable companies seeing that, yeah. then you really know that we're Somewhere we have to be close to yeah. some sort of like market turn on this, right? What um, who's going to buy these assets at this point? Because you're talking about the biggest players, and Anglo apparently said they're going to shed their coal and iron ore assets. Like, it's like who's going to buy this? Like, Cleveland Cliffs was even trying to sell stuff, and it's like, well, you could look at a BHP or a Rio Tinto. I mean, if they do want to increase production or have access to greater production when prices do turn. I think buying something is a much better option than trying to build out a mine or start a brand yeah. new mine because it's a lot less risky. Um, it might cost the same up front, but you're not going to have these setbacks that you generally do see when developing or expanding current mines. So, I could see M&A being the way that people try to increase production in this in this market. You already see dividends being cut across right. the board. Um, not necessarily evaporating, but a lot of people are cutting them in half, trimming them. Uh, Anglo did cut their dividend completely for the second half of 2015, and I think this year too. So, so Tyler, you said you you know, given that the biggest players are having you know facing some desperation at this point, are any of the you know, you're talking about a, hopefully a market turn? Are we at the bottom of the, you know that's this bad? Um, do any of these names look good to you guys? Um, I've been the one I've. I own personally. I own BHP Billiton okay. um, as a miner. And like you said they're very best balance strong. sheet in the, yeah. bi- in the yeah, business, yeah. and that's one of the reasons I've been attracted to them. Uh, at the same time, I- I'm still not huge on the buying opportunity right now. I mean, you could, 
as somebody maybe just like kind of be buying in intervals. I'm not adding a little bit extra right. to that being like, yeah, this is looking pretty good right now. I'm still just kind of adding slowly just at the kind of current pace that I've been going at, at right now. Not really changing my outlook or thesis on anything. Cool. Well, if you look at like prices, I've got this from Canon Core Genuity. They've got the last 12 months for copper down 21%, lead down only 2%, gold down 2.5%, iron ore down 26%, coking coal down 27%, nickel down 43%. But then if you go back six months, three months, one month, one week, you start to see like a noticeable increase in, in like, so you, one week changes. Most of the commodities are positive. One month changes. Double digits for zinc, gold, iron ore, lead. So maybe things are starting to bottom out price wise. But couldn't I think, get much worse, right? <laughs> I think companies are still going to have a tough time. Yeah. Um, because these these increases in price are off such a low base that yeah. they're still not really making and, a bunch of money. And it kind of adds to the appeal of a Rio or a BHP who are diversified miners, yeah. who have kind of assets across several mining spaces mine versus like or, a yeah. like a Vale or somebody like that who's much more of a pure iron ore and uh, coking coal kind of player. You know, if you're spread out among some of these ones that we're starting to see a little recovering in, yeah, you get a little bit of help. Got it. Cool. All right. Well, before we move on to talking Buffett, I wanted to point our listeners to focus.fool.com, where you can take advantage of a discount on the Motley Fool Stock Advisor newsletter that works out to $129 for a full two-year subscription. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And the big story of the week, kind of, sort of, I don't know. Um, Warren Buffett steps up and buys Kinder Morgan. He bought, what, 26.5 million shares or something? Yeah, somewhere just, just shy of 400 million uh, $400 million so not stake. big for him, no, but no. it, it's nice to see. Yeah, I mean, any time that a company gets the stamp of approval from Warren Buffett, it's normally a pretty good sign. Um, when you're looking at a three $400 million acquisition, it probably means that it might not have been Buffett himself. It may have been one it, of his... It's, this has a Todd Combs feel to it, because it's only $400 million. Right. So, so. It, it, it may not actually be Buffett himself, but certainly within the... What's the name of that other lieutenant he has? Todd Sorry. Combs and... Eh, anyway. Not, not ringing a bell right now. But, I mean, if you look at Kinder Morgan, you, know, you, you go from a company that uh, a few months ago, it's... It was kind of everybody was questioning. Oh, is this dividend sustainable? You know, then running they into some credit, yeah. they're going to run into some credit ratings, and then they immediately cut. And now, uh, I've got to assume that it wasn't just like back in December when this happened. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway and the, the people there said, "Oh, t- really? Time to start looking at these guys." And then they pull a trigger on it within months. Actually, if you think about it, the um, the purchase that they made. On the 13F would have come in the fourth quarter, right? So this this was actually probably happening then, but I've got to imagine that the months and quarters and maybe even a year or so before that, this was something that was on the radar. I, I can't imagine that they made such a quick decision right. on that without really looking at the business long term. Got it. Um, and actually, Ted Weschler. Ha- yeah. Oh, there you Todd go. Todd Combs and Ted Weschler. There we go. Um, and actually, I think Ted, um, he lives here in Virginia, in Charlottesville. Yeah, I think you're right. So, anyway. Um, so, as an addendum, we have uh, that loyal listener that wrote in a couple of times before, Leland Payne down there in Texas. He actually wrote in about this. Um, he says, Sean, today we learned that Berkshire Hathaway acquired millions of KMI shares and the stock price closed up 11%, although the jump in oil probably helped too. 
Um, he had a couple of questions. Uh, first up was, did Buffett get a special look at the books? Do you think? What do you think about that, Taylor? Um, I don't know what other. I mean, maybe just a more microscopic look, but. I mean, everyone I gets access Buffett, to balance I mean, he sheet, cash flow statement. He doesn't yeah. do anything special. Um, yeah, if he does, he keeps that to himself. Right. But I wouldn't imagine that no, with a company like Kinder Morgan, like, whatever. I have to imagine that he's like hung out with Richard Kinder or something, though. So, like, uh, if, 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 if they didn't disclose as much as they do disclose, like, right. if there was a company, a small cap, that only released the bare bones of their financial statements, maybe he gets in there and right. chats with the CFO, but... I think there's everything to know about Kinder Morgan is out there. It's just whether or not you can understand it or not. Right. So when we were down in Houston, actually, and I got to sit down with um, Clay Williams over at National Oil Well Varco, he was actually talking about the process of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway buying a company with us. Really? Like what some of the things that they did as as a um, you know, like as an, looking at they sell pipelines or what did they do? Uh, no, it was just, just an equipment general, because okay. Berkshire did have a stake in National Oil Well Varco yeah. a while ago, and he said it was really surprising because typically when an analyst or research coming in, you know, they're asking a whole bunch of these microscopic sort of questions on like, you know, margin compression or expansion and very like short term things, and when. Berkshire came in, you know, there wasn't that huge focus on looking at the books. It was questions like, you know, who are your big customers? Who are your big suppliers? What are what kind of relationship do you have with them? And then he they would go from there and actually go speak with the customers and the suppliers. The idea was not just looking at the company itself, but then looking at all of the people that he was assessing how durable right. their business is. So I've got to imagine that um when he was taking that special look, it wasn't necessarily at the books itself, but I, but probably more likely looking at the space, like you that know, is some really of the major insight. suppliers yeah. and customers that uh, Kinder Morgan serves, and trying to get a gauge of how they may have some pricing strength, uh, contract strength, thing like that, rather than the oh, right. are you able to expand your margin 0.5 percent next quarter? Right. Um, so Leland was also curious. Um, Kinder obviously kind of got overextended, and then they cut the dividend in order to mm-hmm. focus on expanding everything. Um, so he just asked, has the balance sheet been substantially deleveraged at this point? Um, I have to think the answer is no. It's a little early, right? Uh, no, it hasn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you say uh, when you have leverage on your balance sheet, it is your there's a couple ways you can think about it, but I think the most common way is debt or EBITDA to uh, or net debt to EBITDA, and uh, a couple months ago, you know, is when we started to see them focus on it, uh, on deleveraging the balance sheet, and the really only way you can do that is cut debt or increase EBITDA. And with there's no way that's happening in, in, in the terms, market. Yeah. There, you're not certainly not seeing an increase in EBITDA from you know bringing on any new projects or anything like that. And they don't have that huge cash pile to pay down debt. So if neither of those things have really moved yet, then they're not really deleveraging. However, if you look at the way that they've made their dividend policy, they're on the path to do it. Got it. Um, so this gets a little bit more into uh, you know Mayor, maybe for our listeners that don't know a ton about Kinder Morgan. But Lynn's next question is: Are all their contracts to transport oil and gas rock solid, so they'll meet or beat their 2016 revenue and cash flow numbers? I don't have the. Break- so what does Kinder do, and then what do you think about his question? Oh, well, I don't have the breakdown, but I would imagine that the 
over 50% of their pipelines are, are filled with oil from some of the integrateds. Um, I know like Enbridge is about two-thirds supplied by integrated. So when you're dealing with the amount of pipeline that you're dealing with with Kinder Morgan, the, I mean, it's hard not to yeah, deal with Exxon. That my <laughs> guess would have to be that Exxon, Chevron, all these guys are filling the pipes for the most part. So you're looking at pretty safe customer base. Um, like I said, I don't have that mix. It well, might you be don't readily, get as big as Kinder Morgan by just dealing with the small yes, players. Yes, right, exactly. So I think I mean, you know EOG might be one of the smallest companies that they work <laughs> with. Like because other than that, who's going to move the needle for right. the kind of capacity that they're looking for? Right. And then they have they have oil and gas production assets. Not not ultra meaningful in comparison, um, and then you have the fleet of ships that they bought last year was it 2014, yep. where they tra- have oil transportation um, ships, so they have smaller bits and pieces, but the bulk is the oil and natural gas transportation and and terminaling, and you have to deal with integrateds to to be as big as Kinder is. Cool. And I think maybe just the one weak spot where it might not have that rock solid coverage, just like you said, in the production side, they've. In that, they've got their CO2, carbon dioxide mm-hmm. business, where they're supplying carbon dioxide to producers who are looking to um, use that for enhanced oil production. And as we've seen over the past year or so, that has been kind of the declining spot of earnings and where the contracts aren't as robust. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you're looking from a very, very large component of it, like 85 90% of it is very, very strong, that little bit of 10% can be... Li- can be kind of a game changer. It certainly a while ago when they were paying out so much uh, in terms of dividend. When you have a little bit of weakness, all of a sudden that dividend payment looks unsustainable. But you know now that they've got that much more wiggle room, it's not as bad. Right. Um, so we're nobody at this table, to my knowledge, is a billionaire investor. So sometimes what those guys buy is a little bit different than what we can buy. But uh, Leland's curious, and I'm sure we're all curious: is the stock a buy for the rest of us? Mere mortals. <laughs> um, well, I know it's been recommended in the last couple of months by several yeah, a lot services of here, at, here at, the at the Fool. So, like it, so. Um, I would say, for the average investor, it could be a buying opportunity. Yeah, you look at the price increases over the last week or so, and you might get scared thinking you missed it. But then you look at it's where so it used to be, still. and it's like, wow, there's still like 60 percent upside to right. where we're, to where we have to get to. Cool. Tyler, you've been liking them too, haven't you? I'm I'm more attracted to them now than I was a while ago. Right. Um, I'm still. You liked personal. the dividend cut, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Um, I think it, it puts them in a better place, but at the same time, I'm still actually um, a bigger fan. If I'm going to go out and buy a major pipeline company, I'm going to go buy um, Enterprise Products Partners right now. You and Enterprise, it, man. <laughs> they not only they were in a position where they actually like kept themselves maintained. During the high times, they weren't. You know, they were not to, aggressive. They not as aggressive, yeah. and now they're kind of reaping the benefits of that. And if you look at the, you know, the dividend difference, enterprise is trading at well over a seven percent dividend yield right now. Um, For something that's still, rock solid, still getting yeah. rock solid coverage on that uh, di- dividend uh, payment, and you know, five percent quarterly increases. Almost like clockwork. They've done been doing it for 19 years now. Awesome. So. All right. Well, that is it for us. If you're a loyal listener, list, uh, loyal listener, and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just be email like us. Leland. Yeah, Send be like Leland. Questions. Email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Uh, and thank you, Leland, once again. Um, and as always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear in this program. Tyler Crow and Taylor Muckerman, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening and full on.